Well, welcome. Like I said, we're starting a new series this weekend uh, called Married with Benefits. And what this really is, is the conclusion of our last series. So uh, our last series was called It's a Match. And in that series, we talked about dating. And the premise of that series was this, that if you're younger, uh, generally if you're in high school or college and you hear of uh, the, the biblical kind of desire and directive to pursue marriage, uh, you would look and say, I'm not that interested in that. Most marriages I've been exposed to are broken or dysfunctional or not happy. And why would I go toward marriage and make that such a high goal? And we said, that's understandable. But when we look at the scripture and we look and say, this is what love is in 1 Corinthians 13. And then later on in Ephesians chapter 5, this is what marriage is. And we kind of explore that. We would look and say, well, I'm into that. I'm into being loved. I'm into giving my life and have somebody give their life to me. I would be really into dedication and devotion and growing old together and having life together. I love that idea, but the practical outlay of that that I see in marriage, I don't see that idea playing out very often in marriage. And what we said in It's a Match is we said everybody who ever got married wanted what you want, dreamed what you dreamed, believed they found what you found, and yet they have the marriage that they have. What if we dated differently? What if we put in a different foundation, built our relationship off different things? Could that lead to a different outcome? So that's a fascinating conversation, and it's all online. If you go to bath.graceohio.org, <clears throat> You can listen to that, you can watch it, you can get a podcast or iTunes if you want, and uh, encourage you to do that. There's a bunch of details in that. In fact, you're going to hear me a couple times this weekend uh, say uh, you should go back and listen to It's a Match, right? So it's all there, and we did a lot of kind of in-depth exploring about a couple of those parts of the scriptures there. Uh, this weekend, I, I want to, this weekend and next, I want to kind of wrap up the, the outplay of all that and lock into marriage. So uh, if you're single, uh, what we asked is uh, the last five weeks, we said we're going to talk to you guys and we're going to ask the married people to kind of do the math with that and transport it over into marriage. Now I'm going to reverse that for a couple of weeks. If you're single, I'm going to talk to the married people. I'm going to ask you to take the marriage principles and push them back into the rest of your life. Uh, but that'll allow us to talk about that and kind of put a bow on it. Uh, this weekend, we're going to talk about what marriage is and, in essence, what it isn't. And then next weekend, we're going to talk about what do you do if you have a difficult marriage, if you're struggling, if you don't have two people who are equally committed to it. Uh, what do you do with that? And how do you navigate that biblically and what, what would the God say about it, okay? So, but this week, I want to talk about kind of what marriage is and how we define it and how we approach it. One of my uh, convictions or beliefs is that is that we misdefine marriage. We don't define it correctly. And because we don't define it correctly, when we hit rocky times in our marriage, and you will hit rocky times in your marriage because there's another human being involved, right? So every relationship on the planet that involves two human beings is going to have a rocky time in it. Every friendship, every business partnership, every roommate, every sports team, every marriage. So it's not a marriage thing, it's a human being thing. You're gonna come across a difficult time or a rocky time or have something that you need to work out. And if you have defined your marriage incorrectly, when you come across those difficult times, you will bring the wrong solutions to that problem. 
And when you bring the wrong solutions to that problem, they won't work ultimately. And that compounded over time is where marriages break down and ultimately disintegrate because we weren't operating off of the right definition of a marriage. Now, when you hear about marriage in our culture today and you hear about Dr. Phil, who went through divorce, and Oprah, who's never been married, so like they're perfect people to listen to. Uh, when you listen to those things, what they will tell you is this, commonly the, the idea is this. The common definition of marriage in our culture is that marriage is a partnership. You'll hear that all the time, right? That's real familiar. Marriage is a partnership, and it's two people, and they come into the partnership, and it's 50-50, and what we do is we, we lay aside some of the husband's principles and some of the, the wife's principles, some of the husband's desires, some of the wife's desires. We lay those aside. We compromise. We come together, and we solve our problems by compromise. Uh, we negotiate a truce. I'm unhappy, you're unhappy, let's negotiate a truce. Let's negotiate a middle ground. You want a ranch, I want a colonial, let's buy a split level, that kind of a thing. And we'll, we'll negotiate that way, and that's the premise of most marriages. And we'll lock into that idea, and we'll take our wedding vows, and then we'll move forward with that idea that we have this partnership, and we need to negotiate and work through things, and everybody gives a little, and somehow that will cause our relationship to blossom. And I would submit to you that if you have that view of a marriage, it's actually a worldly view or a non-Christ-like view of a marriage. Uh, it's fascinating what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the scripture is saying that because of what Christ has done in us and because of how he works in us, we now view people the way that Christ views us. And so that's what he's saying. Because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I no longer view you from a worldly point of view. Now what's a worldly point of view? A worldly point of view boiled down to its very core is consumerism. That's a worldly point of view. It's this mindset. I do for you and you do for me and that creates a happy relationship right? I do for you, you do for me, that creates a happy relationship. And to the extent you do for me, that's going to govern the extent that I do for you. And it's consumerism, right? If you're a good boss, then I'll be a good employee. And if you're a good employee, then I'll be a good boss. It's, it's a contractual relationship, which by the way is not sinful, it's just the way that it works, right? Uh, it's consumerism. When I go to a restaurant, if I go to the restaurant and the food is fast and hot and good and the service is good, I'm a satisfied customer. Therefore, I will be polite and I will tip you well and I will come back again and overpay for this food, right? That's the mindset. But if I go to the restaurant and the food is cold and gross and the, the waiter is grumpy, then I will not come back, I will complain and I won't tip the waiter, right? And that's a worldly mindset. What you do for me dictates what I do for you. And Paul says, in Christ, we, we no longer view other people that way. Why? Because we're defined by our relationship in Christ. Now, what that means to marriage is this. Marriage, ready? <clears throat> marriage is not a partnership. Marriage is a promise or a vow or a covenant, the Bible would say. It's not a partnership, it's a covenant, and it's a covenant or a promise 
that is to reflect our relationship with God. This is Ephesians chapter 5, and you've got to go back to uh, it's a match and listen to the whole conversation about Ephesians chapter 5. But when God is defining marriage, he says this way. He says, we are to love each other as Christ loves us. And that's the basis of a marriage. Well, our interaction with God is not a partnership. It's a promise. We don't negotiate our relationship with God. We don't earn our relationship with God. We don't come to God with terms. Our relationship with God is completely, thoroughly, absolutely, unquestionably, ultimately dependent on Christ, not on me. It's by grace I'm saved through faith. It is not by work so that no one can boast. So when I go to, to create a relationship with God, I don't go in to, to make a deal. I don't look at God and say, hey, listen, you let me into heaven? Uh, you let me in heaven? What's it going to take? What's it going to take? Church once a week? No? Okay. Church and giving? Tithing? How about 8%? Right? Uh, how, about, how about I go to church, I give a little bit, and I don't smoke, drink, chew, date girls who do? I'll even throw the Michigan thing in. Right? And that'll let me in. We don't negotiate our position with God. Everything that we have from Christ comes from Christ. It's Christ who pursued. It's Christ who died. It's Christ, bunch of Bible words. Christ who justifies. Christ who sanctifies. Christ who makes us righteous. It's Jesus who gives us our salvation. Jesus who forgives us. Jesus is grace. Jesus is mercy. I'm the recipient of that. And as I receive that, then I start to respond to Christ from love, not in an effort to earn love. So then I respond the way that the church responds to Jesus because I love and I'm so grateful of what Christ has done for me, not because I negotiated a deal with God that if I do this, he'll do this for me. Well, then you pull that over to Ephesians chapter five and God says that's what marriage is. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is not a partnership. Marriage is two people giving themselves completely and thoroughly to each other. It's a promise. It's a commitment. It's a covenant that I love you no matter what. And then ideally, in a healthy marriage, the other person, the, the wife or the husband, looks and says, and I love you no matter what. And what will define our relationship with each other is the love that we have for each other, the sacrifice, the submission, the giving of ourselves to each other. It's not the terms that we negotiate. Now what happens is this. When I'm dating and I fall in love, that's what I signed up for. I love you, you love me, we love each other right? And I'd want to do for you, and it's marked by service, and it's marked by commitment, it's marked by sacrifice, and it's awesome. And then he asked, and I said yes. And now we make a, a wedding ceremony. When we come to the wedding ceremony, we take vows that are built on promises. I promise I will be faithful to you. I promise I will love you. In fact, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, for sickness and health, till death do us part, I will not break that promise. Then we go to execute our marriage and we do it in terms of a contract. Well, it's a partnership. No, it's not. It's a promise. And a partnership is a great basis for a business interaction. 
it's a horrible basis for a marriage. And as we hit the bumps and the bruises and what we do to each other in life because we're human beings and what we do the most naturally and most consistently is sin against each other. So as we go into that relationship, if we bring contractual solutions to a promised relationship, at the very best, we will become functional roommates. But none of that will feed love, will feed passion, will feed romance, will feed unity and oneness. It'll make the deal work, but it will not paint this beautiful picture that we're attracted to in the scripture of 1 Corinthians 13 and Ephesians chapter 5, right? Now, what I want to do this weekend is I want to walk us through this a little bit, and I want to compare and contrast this idea of contract and promise, and I want to show you what, what a marriage built on a promise looks like, kind of as opposed to a marriage built on a contract, and I, I bet you a dollar, I bet you sushi, that the promise one is the one that you signed up for and we're all attracted to. And I'm saying you will never have that if you try to execute it on a contract. So God can help us, he can guide us, he can show us, I'll walk you through this, but let's look at the difference. What does a marriage built on a promise look like? What are the characteristics of that marriage? Okay, I put this in your notes. You can look at those or you can look on the app and we'll walk through this. Here's the first thing we wrote down. In a marriage built on a promise, something happens to my view of my spouse, and it's this. In a marriage built on a promise, I view my spouse as my first neighbor. I view my spouse as my first neighbor. Now, let me explain this a little bit. Grab your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Mark chapter 12. And it's page 709 in those Bibles in the chairs there, or it's on the app if you want to use that. Mark chapter 12. Let me tee this up a little bit. Dude comes up to Jesus and says, hey, there's so much that I hear about what it means to love and follow God. Jesus, can you boil it down? What's the greatest commandment? Like, give me one or two things. What am I supposed to do to follow God? And Jesus says, sure, I'll help you out. And he says this in verse 30. This is what it means to love God. Here's the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The seconds like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandment greater than these. Jesus says, here's what it boils down to. You love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you do that, you will love your neighbor as yourself because the the object of my passion is people. And so when you love me, you will love the people around me. You will love your neighbors yourself. In the Bible, the word neighbor is used differently than how we use it. When we say neighbor, we mean the people that live next to us, right? Which is fine, but the Bible uses it differently. When the Bible uses the word neighbor, it means the people that God brings into our natural path of life. So my neighbor is anybody from a person who needs help to the person that I work with to my roommate, to the, my, the person I play sports with, to my physical neighbor, the way that we would use it, all the way into my family. And as you read the Bible and kind of get a big view of the Bible, what you find is that when God talks about neighbors, he always talks about neighbors kind of in, in, a, in a, a concentric circles. So there's a close-in neighbor and then there's a far-out neighbor 
there's the person that needs compassion, there's a person I work with, there's a person that I, maybe I play golf with or play lacrosse with, there's my cousin, there's my mom, there's my sister, there's my spouse. And my spouse is my first neighbor. My spouse in the scripture is to be the person who receives first the attributes that God wants me to extend to my neighbors. My spouse is the first recipient of grace, the first recipient of mercy, the first recipient of forgiveness, the first recipient of my patience, the first recipient of my compassion, of my investment. So we would look neighborly, like this, the grace race that, that we're doing, right? That's to, to raise money to buy 200,000 meals for starving kids because we look and say, God brought them into our lives. Let's meet their needs. We want to be neighborly. Well, in the scripture, my, the first person that would get that level of effort is my spouse, my husband, my wife. The first person, that, when I'm trying to be patient with this guy at work, I'm praying with him, uh, praying for him. The first person that will get that level of patience from me is my spouse. They are my first neighbor in a marriage that's built on a promise. Now, let me show you this. In a marriage that's built on a contract, the person that annoys me the most is my spouse, the person that lets me down the most is my spouse. The person that doesn't measure up to my expectations the most is my spouse. Because when I have a contract and what I do all day is stare at the contract, I will find all the major and minute violations of said contract. And the thing with marriage is you're with your spouse all the time. They're always there all day every day they go to bed with you they go on vacation with you they're there on the weekends you can't escape them they're with you 24 7 and if i am looking at the terms of our deal 24 7 I'm going to find the violations and I'm going to keep the record of the violations and they're going to drive me insane. Because nobody can fulfill a contract under that level of scrutiny. We made a deal. I remember it was 2001 and you left your Starburst wrappers in my car, and I specifically said, you're not allowed to mess my car up, and we negotiated a peace treaty, and you said, if you would quit, I'll quit messing your car up and quit complaining if you'll stop raising your voice to me, and you raise your voice to me, and you mess my car up, and I haven't messed your car up in many, many years, but you sure haven't kept your voice down over the years. I'm gonna go right now and just dump the trash in your car because you have violated a contract with me we said we said you're supposed to there are rules that we have laid down about how to load the dishwasher how complicated is it to load the dishwasher i have documented that i put you through employee training about loading the dishwasher and is that cup on the top rack is it on the top rack does it look like it's on the top rack I'm making all this up. (laughs) 
And when I make a contract, and then I spend 24-7 with the person I made it with, you cannot fulfill it. And you, and she, and you, and he are going to be miserable. Why? Because it's not what the relationship is. Now, if I view my marriage as a promise, and my spouse is my first neighbor, then when he fails, it's an opportunity for me to restore him gently in love. When, when she messes up, it's an opportunity for, for me to extend grace and compassion to her. When, when, when things don't go the way that plan, we planned it, it's an opportunity for me to bear her burden or bear his burden. My responses are completely different in a promise than they are in a contract. And when I make a contract, it does not matter the solutions that you bring. It will not produce love. But when you live in a promise, I don't want to keep a record of wrongs. I don't want to. You leave your Starburst wrappers in my car, I get to clean the car for you. I get to serve you. I get to help you. The same mindset I would have for feeding uh, hungry kids or working in the inner city or being patient with this person or need or same mindset. And my spouse is the first recipient, the primary recipient in a marriage because a marriage is a promise. It's not a contract. Here's a second mark of a, of a marriage built on a promise. A marriage built on a promise is going to be marked by a deep acceptance of my spouse. A deep acceptance of my spouse. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 7. It's really fascinating that God says this. He says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Isn't that fascinating? Because when we talk about the one another stuff, a lot of times we talk about it like this. Uh, love one another as you have been loved. Got it. Forgive one another as you have been forgiven. Nailed it. Accept one another as you've been accepted. What? How does God accept you? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that when I repent of my sins and ask for the salvation of Jesus Christ, that Christ forgives me thoroughly and completely and totally. He, he fully justifies me, fully sanctifies me, etc. All the big fancy words. God does that work completely. In fact, so much so that my sin is thrown from the, as far as the east is from the west. I'm a new creation. I'm a whole new person in Jesus Christ, and there is no condemnation. When Christ accepts me through the forgiveness of my sin, it is thorough, it's complete, it's ultimate, and it is permanent and then God looks and says I want you guys to accept each other like that because what marriage is marriage is you reflecting my love for you you doing with each other what I do for you, you marriage is not a deal marriage is a promise it's you acting like me to your spouse and I accepted you completely I want you to accept them Guys, one of the ongoing points of tension in every relationship is our desire to change each other. And one of the big reasons why we want to change each other is because of our contractual mindset. Listen, I, put the, I don't really like the way that you act, so I'm going to put this clause in our contract, and we're going to negotiate it, 
right? Uh, I will act this way, and you act this way. You quit being what you're like, and I'll quit being a little bit what I'm like, and then we'll kind of somehow tolerate each other in the middle. Here's the problem. The Scripture never says we're supposed to change each other. The Scripture says we're supposed to submit to one another. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 in the Ephesians chapter five passage, which is God's kind of great statement about marriage, that whole passage is predicated on verse 21. And in verse 21, what the Bible says this, the Bible says, submit to one another then out of reverence for Christ. You cannot understand marriage if you do not understand submission. So submission in the Bible means giving the best of yourself to someone for their benefit. I'm gonna give the best of myself to you for my benefit. So in marriage, submission is not gender specific. We always skip verse 21 and jump right into verse 22 where it says wives submit to your husbands and we make, we make marriage uh, submission gender specific. It's not because you have to read everything through verse 21. So all God is doing in verse 22 is repeating verse 21. And then he says, wives, you do it this way, he uses the word submission, and then later on, he says, husbands, you die to yourself and you love like Christ loved the church. Submission is, is the, the bind of marriage. I want to give the best of myself to you, and a spouse then says, I want to give the best of myself to you, and that's what the wedding vows incorporate. Everything that I have, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. Submit to one another. God doesn't say change each other. He says submit to one another. Give the best of yourself to each other. In a contract, you negotiate it, and then if you violate the contract, you've rejected the person. In a promise, you're always looking to submit, not to fight for your position. Do you know how most divorces happen? There are some divorces that, that are full of pain and full of dysfunction and full of abusive and, and unstable people, and we're gonna talk about those painful things next weekend. But do you know how the majority of divorces happen? The majority of divorces happen one rejection at a time. They happen one rejection at a time. I don't like you anymore. We call it falling out of love. I don't like you anymore. When, when we were dating, you thought that my idiosyncrasies were attractive, right? Oh, she's always late. She, oh, it's so cute. She's always late. She's Brazilian. She's always late. It's just, oh, it's so I think I find, the, I find the cultural differences intriguing. She's always late. 20 years later, what are you doing? We gotta go, or we're not gonna be 10 minutes early. When you're dating, he's so funny. He's so funny. He just makes me laugh. I think that's why I love him. He just makes me laugh. He's hilarious. He's just incredible. 20 years later, you're an idiot. <laughs> I have heard that, I knew you were gonna say that joke, moron, right? How does divorce happen? One rejection at a time. I am who I am, and I'm not talking about using it in an abusive way. Like, I get to be who I am, and you have to. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about enabling. I'm talking about this is how God wired me. This is how God created me. This is my instinct. This is my personality. 
And in a contractual relationship, those things are negotiated down so that who you are no longer inconveniences me or taxes me. In a promise relationship, I submit. I want to give the best of myself to you so that you can be the best of who God created you to be. That's what a loving wife does. I give the best of myself to you so that you can be, sweetie, fully and completely who God created you to be. And we do that mutually, see? And it looks like and it feels like a deep and full acceptance of one another. Another mark of a healthy marriage, a marriage that's built on a promise is this one. Marriages that are marked by a promise are marked by a passion to understand our spouse. I just want to show you this real quick. You don't even have to flip there if you don't want to, but 1 Peter chapter 3, it's a great passage. You should read it, but specifically verse 7 says this. Verse 7, husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them as respect, as a weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. We actually talked about that verse quite a bit and uh, it's a match, and you can go listen to that and get into the details of it. But the words I want to key in on is this. Husbands, live in a considerate way with your wives. In the other translation, the Bible says, husbands, live in an understanding way with your wife. Marriages that are marked by a, promises, a promise are marriages between two people who have a passion to understand their spouse. The principle that Peter is directing toward men also applies to women, but it's this idea. Husbands, you are looking to understand your wife's heart and mind. In a contractual relationship, I'm looking for ways to tolerate her heart and mind. I'm looking for ways to counter her heart and her mind. I'm looking for ways to, to somehow deal with that. So what happens is this her background and her weaknesses become ammunition and evidence in your argument against her violation of the contract. There's no desire to know or understand how they're affecting her heart and her mind. There's a desire to accumulate so that you can prove your point. Listen, I don't know what your deal is, but I, I'm sick of it. I, I, know, I know that you grew up in Dysfunction Junction and your mom's crazy. Everybody knows your mom's crazy. But you don't have to be crazy on me. You were raised in crazy. You're acting just like your crazy mother right now. I don't know what your deal is, or what, but don't be crazy on me. And I'm looking at my wife's heart, my mind, her mind. I'm looking at her vulnerabilities and how she expressed those. And in a contract, like in a business deal, I'm accumulating all that so I can throw it on the table at the right time to get more out of the deal. In a covenantal marriage, in a promise relationship, I'm not looking at a person, I'm looking through them. Sweetheart, what's going on? What, I, they're, they're, I, like we're, we're having a meltdown right now, this isn't good, but I don't understand why. Did something else, was there something else that happened in your day today besides me coming home? Did anything else occur that I need to know about? Are you stressed out? Are you, did you talk to your mom? Did she flip out about the holidays again? Are you stressed out? 
is all of that emotional baggage coming back in so now you feel like a 12-year-old that has to defend yourself? Are you in pain? And I wouldn't say those words, but I might have that understanding. I want to know you so I can understand you so that I can meet your needs, not accumulate evidence to prove my point. And then wives, you flip it. So your husband, he comes home, he's flipping out, he's grumpy in the kitchen and the dog and the cat's the devil, and right? And you're looking, what is your problem? You're just like your dad. I watched, you, you're, I watched your dad do that to your mom all these years. You're your father. I can't stand your father. You know what you said? Right? And all of a sudden, all the ways that he was vulnerable, all the ways that he was open with you become evidence accumulated to make an accusation with. That's a way of con- it's a good business deal. You want that guy negotiating your lease. You don't want to be married to him. Or I can be understanding. Sweetheart, what what happened today? I mean, we haven't we haven't even we you know, you're blowing up like that. We can't do that, but what's going on? Did 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 your boss talk to you in a condescending, belittling, dehumanizing way, the way your dad always did every time you walked onto the baseball field? Did that trigger a set of emotions in you? And now suddenly I wanna live with my husband and understand this is your heart, this is your mind. I'm looking to meet their needs. I'm not looking to prove my point. I wrote it down this way in my, um, in my notes. It said this, in a marriage built on a promise, the wife is fighting harder to understand her husband than the husband is fighting to be heard. The fight is you getting into his heart, not him trying to get you to pay attention. And then you flip it. In a marriage built on a promise, the husband is fighting to understand his wife harder than his wife is fighting to be listened to. That the effort, instead of, instead of being defensive and angry, I'm gonna prove you wrong, I'm gonna put the effort into, I, I'm trying to know and hear and look through, not at and, because what does God do? God doesn't look on the outward appearance, he looks on the heart. God is looking through us, God is ministering to us, the Holy Spirit is helping us, there is compassion, there is grace. There are times that there are correction for sure, not talking about enabling, and I'm not talking about being a pushover, next week's conversation. But God is ministering to us. It's what we need from God, what we receive from God. And then God looks and says, hey, that's my daughter that's struggling. I want to minister to her through you, husband, through you, wife an understanding way. And marriages built on promises work that way. Marriages built on contracts, oh, it's, it's, all, it's all evidence for the next round of negotiation. And it will only leave you in a miserable, lonely, broken place. Here's the last thing. A mark of a marriage built on a promise is this. A marriage that's built on a promise is defined or marked by a maturing attraction to one another, a maturing attraction. This is, this is a fascinating point.
point. Uh, if uh, Grab your Bibles, flip way to the left to the book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. And the Bible's there in the chairs. It's page uh, 471. So way over to the left, book of Song of Solomon, kind of in the middle-ish of your Bible. And let me, uh, let me put in some context here. So Song of Solomon is, is a, f- a beautiful love story. Sometimes we call it the sex book of the Bible, so it's kind of hot if you ever want to read it. But it, it's, it's really good. But it's this beautiful love story, and the love story plays out like this. It, it starts off with two people being attracted to each other. It's all two people. The whole book is just two people. Two people being attracted to each other, then they start what we would call dating. So they start dating. Then they get engaged. Then they get married. And then they grow old together. It's kind of their love story. So chapter 7 of the book of Song of Solomon is them kind of in middle age. Okay? So they've been married for a while. Certainly there's been kids involved, the whole nine yards. And when you look at this, I want you to see the way that this husband sees his aging wife. Listen to what he says about her Chapter 7, verse 1, how beautiful are your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is like a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Great pickup line there, single guys. Let's <laughs> go up to a woman and be like, hey, you got a wheat belly. It's a, that's, that'll work every Every single time. Your, verse three, your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. A, another non, can't miss. Can't miss with that. You, it, every single time you're going to land that one. Verse five, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like a royal tapestry. The king is captive, is held captive by your tresses. How beautiful you are, how pleasing, my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of palm, uh, uh, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on, on wine, the fragrances of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. This is a man who is looking at a woman who he has aged with, who he has worked with, who has bore him children, and time and gravity and babies have taken the toll on her body. And when he looks at her, he is more attracted to her than ever. And then the rest of the chapter, she responds, that's really hot. Because she's looking back at like him with a dad bod, right? Her knight in shiny armor, the only thing shiny on him is his head. And, and she, she's more attracted to him than ever. Now listen, this is a big deal to me. We live in this culture, and our culture says that everything with love is tied to youth. It's all perverted. It's all, it's all wrong. And that if you're going to stay in love and you're going to have a great marriage, you're going to have a hot marriage, you're going to have a sexy marriage then you better stay young. You better nip it. You better tuck it. You better lift it. And then your sex life, you better have a sex life. Your sex life better be the same sex life you had when you were 25. You better take a pill, a supplement, something. And nowhere is the message communicated 
that growing old with each other is beautiful and attractive. He's looking at his wife's body. He's talking about her breasts, her breasts that have nurtured his children, but he's still attracted. These are not the breasts of a young woman. He's looking at her belly, who, who bears the mark of bearing him children. And he's looking and saying, honey, when I look at your body, I don't see the sexiness of a 25-year-old. It's hotter than that. I see a life that we've lived together. I see a family that we've created. And I'm drawn to you. Not because we're, we're hot and young, but because of the richness and the power, my, my attraction to you has matured past the shallowness of youth. And she looks back at her husband and what draws her to her husband, it, he, he, didn't, he didn't have six pack of abs. Some of us just never have. Let's just be honest about that, right? That's all gone. Gravity takes its effect. She looks back at her husband and she says, what I see is I see a body that has served me, a body that you and I became one and we created our children, a body that in his case has gone to war, has protected me, has certainly been broken for me in many ways. I look at someone who has give, you gave me your youth. He looks at her and he says, you gave me your youth. You gave me the beauty of your youth, the health of your youth, the childbearing of your youth. You gave me your youth. You toiled, you struggled, you created, you provided for our family. And that is what draws me to you. It's a maturing attraction that, that goes beyond some fa- false, ad- what are we gonna take pills and be plastic? Now in a contractual relationship, that's exactly what happens. I've been married to you for 25 years, you don't turn me on anymore. And we had a deal. And you can't, you can't live up to the contract. I've been married to you for 25 years, and our life didn't, I thought for sure the decimal point would have moved a lot further in your salary by now. We, we're still in our starter house. And that's always going to break. But a promise I'm captivated by you, baby, and I still am. And life twist and turned us, and who knew that was going to happen? But you, for better, for worse, richer, poorer, sickness and health, we. And the promise, it doesn't just hold. I'm not talking about like toughing it out. The promise is sweeter, better than, more attracted than the broken contract. Guys, I've been a pastor a long time. I'm getting old. I I turned 45 this week. Thanks for the gifts. (laughs) It, It overwhelmed me. Cash and gift cards is what I prefer. But, and belated birthdays are fine, right? But 
I've been a pastor a long time. I've been a pastor long enough to see the ravages of divorce. People I love and care for. Divorce, even when, it, when it's unavoidable and it's within biblical parameters, it still does nothing but cause pain. That's why God hates it. He doesn't hate you. He hates the pain that you have to go through. I've also been a pastor long enough to see people go the distance. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I watched my mom and dad 52 years till death parted them. And they were they loved each other, they enjoyed each other, they had fun together. And they both, I tell you, birds of a feather dysfunction together. They were the most dysfunctional human beings because they grew up with nothing. But they found Christ. They built a relationship on a promise, not a contract. I watched Heidi's mom and dad. They, they went the distance till mom went home to be with the Lord. Her dad loved his wife, served her, sacrificed we lost, a, we lost a dear saint at Grace Church this week, Craig Christner. Dear, dear man. We lit, our church literally would not exist if not for Craig Christner. And I watched him and his wife, Linda, go the distance. And she cared and loved. He lit up every time she walked in the room. They're a couple of young lovebirds. They went the distance it was beautiful. And that's what we want. When we talk about 1 Corinthians 13 and Ephesians chapter 5, that, we all want that. That's not some fairy tale out there somewhere. We want that, and you'll never get it with a contract. But with a promise, when you stand before witnesses on your wedding day, the primary audience at that ceremony is not your mom and dad, it's not your best man and bridesmaids, it is Jesus Christ. And the primary person that you are making a vow or a promise to is not your husband or your wife, it's to your savior. And the father of the bride The earthly father is just the stand-in. The father of the bride is our creator God. The father of the groom is our creator God. And the father of the bride and the father of the groom is the one who gives the bride and the groom to each other. And then he looks at the bride and the groom and he says, if if you invite me in, if, if you've, Know me, follow me. I will walk you down a path that you can have what you want and you will reflect my love for you. And that's a promise. It's, a mar- it's the same covenant God makes to you and me. This is one of the circumstances in our life where when we look and say, I want to be loved and I want to love because that's what we have. We don't, we're not all just selfish. I want to be loved. Sure I do. I also want to love because half the fun is loving someone else. 
So I want to be loved and I want to love. And I want devotion and I want distance and I want security and I, I want to grow old with my wife in all the right ways. This is one of the circumstances in our lives where God looks at you and he would say, you know what, I want the exact same thing for you. That is a desire of your heart and I actually want to give it to you. I want the same thing for you. I want you to go the distance and I want you to do it with joy and I want you to do it with passion and I'll help you overcome the bumps and the bruises and that's gonna happen in life. But I want exactly what you want. We have to achieve it with God's plan. If you date in chaos, you date in immorality, you date with a godless relationship, you're gonna be married in chaos and married in immorality and married in a godless relationship. You made a contract, you're not gonna fulfill it. But if you date in Christ, you fall in love in godliness, you make Christ the middle of it all, and then you make a vow to God to each other so the three strands are woven together, then you're married in Christ. The promise drives it, not the deal. And you can go the distance. You don't go, I'm not talking about surviving. I'm not talking about, well, it's such a hassle now to break up the assets, might as well. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about love and passion and sexiness and sexualness and joy and a richness that is beautiful and it's rare. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, when we marry and that is our outcome, the church word is testimony. The testimony of that is unbelievable because it's what everybody wants and very, very few people have no idea how to get. And God wants it for you. That's not a pipe dream. That's not a Disney movie. That's the plan of God. You bring him into the middle of it, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. All right. Let me ask you two questions, and then we're gonna, the band will come out, we'll create some space for you just to be with God and to think and to pray, okay? Here's first question. First question is, is kind of the obvious one. Is your marriage, does your marriage represent a contract or does it represent a promise? Here's the best way to figure this out. If you wanna figure out if your marriage is based on a contract or a promise, what you should do is do this. Ask yourself how you solve your problems. When we have a problem, how do we solve it? Do we negotiate a truce? Ranch, colonial, ah, we'll just have a split level. Now neither one of us are happy, depending on what side of the house we're on. If you solve your problems through negotiation and a truce, then you're probably working a contract. If you solve your problems with submission, Sweetie, what I want is I want what you want. What will make me happy is when your dreams come true. So you work in a contract, or are you working to build a promise? Here's the second thing. Our marriages are not legal entities. Do not confuse that. 
The marriage license from the state of Ohio is a tax document. It has nothing to do with God ordaining. That's why it does not matter what the court systems say a marriage is or isn't. It matters what the New Testament says, what the Word of God says. Our marriages are primarily spiritual. And my vow is primarily to Christ. So when I do not want to live in promise with my spouse, it's a spiritual question, not an not a interpersonal question. Do you remember when you were walking closely with God? When church was a routine, when small group was the habit, when devotions was our, and do you remember how close you were to each other when both of you were pursuing that? And now there's distance? What else is missing? So what's your relationship with Christ? Is there one? Have you received the forgiveness of your sin? Have you given the authority of your life over Christ? And then is there the pursuit of one? And as we draw closer to God, we will by nature, as you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will, by default, wind up loving your neighbor as yourself and your spouse as your first neighbor. The path to each other is up, right? So where's your relationship with Christ and what's the vibrancy of it? Let me pray for us, and then uh, you can ask God, spend some time with God, talk to him, think, pray, let him bang around in your heart a little bit and, and see what he has to say to you. Jesus, we love you. Help us, change us, grow us, draw us to you, God. And God, for, for the majority of us who just struggle with life and people and the ups and downs and all that kind of stuff, Lord, Help us to look again at your heart, to receive again from you, and then, Lord, to, to extend love and grace to each other. God, for those of us in painful relationships that are one-sided or deeply broken, give us comfort and help, even a supernatural power there, Lord, and work. For all of us, God, let us turn ourselves to you and give you latitude and freedom in our lives. Do that with us even now, Jesus, in your name. Amen.